Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where I discuss the real, eccentric, and complex history of math. In each episode, I unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today we'll talk about Emily du Châtelet, and this episode will answer the following questions. What are the best traits to list on your eHarmony profile? Would this podcast have survived in 1730s Paris? Of course it would, what am I saying? And what do either of these have to do with math? Let's find out. Listeners, I know it's been a while since we've had any new content, and I'm so thrilled to be back. Although the commercials are one of my favorite things to do, I didn't create any for this series because I wanted to get the story to you as quickly as possible because it's a good one. Plus, Snowpocalypse 2, the sleetening that just happened here in Houston a couple weeks ago kind of slowed me down a little bit. But in any case, today we're talking about Emily du Châtelet, described by Voltaire with the following quote. She was a great man whose only fault was in being a woman. A woman who translated and explained Newton. In one word, a very great man. So, she's primarily known for translating Newton's Principia from English to French. However, she also wrote an intro physics textbook and taught us so much about kinetic energy. As usual, sources are conflicted, but research tended to focus not so much on her scientific work, but interestingly enough, on her relationship with Voltaire, as well as other affairs she had. So we'll try to do both, because it's a fascinating story, when is it not? But before we get to anything, I am so excited to introduce my hubby who will come along with us on this journey. You may know him from such works as Vote for the Guy with the Golden Thigh or The Great Thinker's Program who discovered the secret of all self-made philosopher kings. Welcome, Rob. Hi, audience. Uh, hopefully I can offer a little more commentary with then uh, Vote for the Guy with the Golden Thigh. <laughs> really looking forward to being on the show. So part of the reason, Rob, that you're here is because I obviously nerd out about math and you are here to let me know if I'm going too far down that rabbit hole. Do you feel okay about that? So to get you back on the trail where you Yeah, be. exactly. Because, you know, we don't want to math it up too much. I can probably do that considering my mathematical knowledge is fairly limited. You're voting for the guy with the golden <laughs> thigh. I mean... <laughs> Okay, so so listeners, we're going to talk about Emily du Châtelet, and I'm going to tell Rob this story, and he's going to make sure that I don't math it up too much. Now, this very first episode, I mostly want to talk a little bit about her background, you know, and also um, the society that she was born into. So at this time, there were very few learned French women. And part of the reason for this, because very like there, there was hardly anybody, and, and I feel this, I guess, that uh, really showed inclination to spend long hours studying. Well, they had to spend all their long hours, you know, eating cheese and drinking wine, I suppose. I mean, that is, that is my ideal state. <laughs> <laughs> you properly sit at a table and drink your wine. That is what you learn to do as a French woman. In the 1730s, in the 1770s, 1730s. or 1700s, I guess, <laughs> you know, who can say? Now, um, the at this time, they had the very first school was founded for, for women of the nobility, and it was actually to educate the daughters there because what they wanted to do was actually to prepare them to be future wives of the nobility. So as you can imagine, there, were, there was a lot of very elementary stuff, and there wasn't a whole lot of need for math or science. So again, I guess this would go back to you're going to learn how to properly drink wine and eat, eat cheese, cheese at the cafe. That's <laughs> how you prepare to be a well, proper French wife. Actually, the cafe society had not started at this time because we're in late 1600s, early 1700s ah. at this time. 
So, you know, actually men at this time, they didn't like the idea of education for daughters of the nobility. They didn't want them for whatever reason to be educated. And they, daughters of the poor, like they didn't even consider them at all. And what's interesting here is that several of the folks, the, the men at this time, you know, Rosset, Diderot, Voltaire, Moliere, etc., they all agreed with this, which is hilarious because so many of them selected and found, like sought out smart women to keep as their companions. That's hilarious. So uh, to keep with the norms, they couldn't publicly say, yes, yes, let's educate these smart women in, mm -hmm. in the STEM fields. Versus, you know, in private, they're very much, yeah, I kind of like hanging out with the chicks. They know because what's they're going smart. on. They're smart and they know what's going on, but I can't say that publicly. What's ridiculous, right? Like you'll hear Voltaire's story, but at the time, Moliere and Boileau published works and they actually ridiculed learned women. They It made the term femme savant, like it was denotation completely. Like you didn't want to be a part of that. That's <laughs> so smart women were a novelty to be made fun of. Yeah. And then what's funny <laughs> was that somebody somebody came to Moliere and was like, Moliere, why, like, I guess you're being a jerk, Moliere. And he was like, no, 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 no. I'm cool. I swear. It was just aimed at superficial pedantry. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Way well, to cover yourself there. Yeah, exactly, right? I, I didn't really mean it. I just said that thing publicly for no, all no, to No, no, no. That was an article that I wrote for The Onion. You <laughs> <know>? <laughs> so, but, but in any case, it was too late at this point. It really reinforced what people thought at the time. And then that helped to create an environment where folks didn't really want women to display knowledge. And in fact, it was so bad that anybody, any woman who actually had some smarts, they took pains to hide how smart they were. What was that line from Mad Men with... Uh, Peggy? Yeah, with, with was it Freddie? Freddie oh, said about yeah. Peggy when... when so, yeah, when, yeah the, the Belle Jolie <laughs> lipstick campaign, they came in and she said something, I think it was basket full of kisses or something like that. And a, said, yeah, a, a brilliant marketing tagline. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, it's like watching a dog play the piano. <laughs> I was so salty about that. <laughs> now... Also around this time, again, this is the environment that's that's happening right when Emily is, is being born and, and she's starting to come in. So at this time, uh, they had something that's called the salon, and those were in vogue. And so that's it's spelled like a salon, but it's not a hair salon, but because it's French, it's pronounced salon. And so do you want to talk a little about what a salon is? So it'd be like a large gathering room, wouldn't it be in a, in a house? Mm -hmm. Like it's dedicated for people to basically sit and talk. Exactly. What you said was exactly correct, which is that it's a large room where they would gather and, and have smart people of the day chat about interesting topics. And so this was common all across Europe. In Italy, uh, Maria of Agnesi, you may have heard of the Witch of Agnesi. And I wanted to talk about her, but her story was too sad to be the very first one. But she uh, was actually known for her discussions that her dad would host. And they would have, you know, rich people and they would have, you know, really important people come by. And they would all have discussions about whatever it was that they wanted to, to talk about. But back to France at the time. Um, in the Salon, if a woman dared devote herself, like how dare she, clutch her pearls, to to science or philosophy, the salons were the only place to discuss this. But then, and I quote, it had to be gay and bright and shallow. And by the way, I just feel like I would rock 
back at salons because allow for me to play for you this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So in a society where they can't publicly show off any of their smarts, Mm -hmm. they're invited to these salons where they can show off their smarts within a very constrained manner. Correct. Coloring the lines. Yeah. So here's your coloring book. Uh Uh-huh. But you can't have colored pencils. You can have crayons. You can only have three colors. And stay inside the lines. Maybe it's even color by number. Ooh. Yeah. Here's color by numbers. And if you dare, you know, do any freehand, you're getting tossed right out of here. <laughs> you know, 100%. And and it's, so it's not surprising that at that time, there no women really did anything particularly remarkable with math or science. Thanks a lot, Moliere, Boileau, Voltaire, <laughs> Diderot, all you people. Femme savants are the worst. Um, but but all they would do is they'd be in the salons and that was happy and, and gay and bright and shallow. And then here comes Emily. So let's describe her according to her dad. I found this quote that I'm going to just go ahead and read because I would really like your feedback on what this loving father has said about his daughter. Are okay. you ready? Okay. Let's go. So, you know, in my mind, I'm imagining here... His here, loving father. Yes, correct. Like, the, the wife gives birth. And you know right now, it's like, oh boy, like, let's give out all the cigars or maybe wine and cheese, whatever you do in France in the 1700s. And I'm so happy, like, my beautiful daughter. Okay, here it is. My youngest is an odd creature destined to become the homeliest of women. Were it not for the low opinion I hold of several bishops... I would prepare her for a religious life and let her hide in the convent. She stands as tall as a girl twice her years. She has prodigious strength like that of a woodcutter and is clumsy beyond belief. (laughs) Her feet are huge, but one forgets... I know, I'm not done. Listen, (laughs) her feet are huge, but one forgets them the moment one notices her enormous hands. If we had a daughter, that is exactly how I imagine you'd describe her to people. It's so flattering. I mean, my gosh. You know, you never hear anybody say, look at my ugly child. <laughs> Everybody, regardless of how ugly their child might be, believes they're the most beautiful thing exactly. in the world. And this is, wow. And he had to really put pen to paper uh-huh, to, write to come up with this. And my question is, is this his journal or is he writing a letter to someone? Is he standing on a box and proclaiming it to the town square? Okay, now you're reminding me of that guy from Hunchback of Notre Dame, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, Emily, and she's an amazing person. I can't wait to get into more of her story. One source said that her parents educated her to make the best of her future spinsterhood because they were basically like, listen, you're too ugly, you're not going to find a husband. But another source said that they actually educated her because her genius showed early. So you you decide what you want. I, I, I got to go with like, this is a smart girl. Let's give her all the opportunities that we can versus my God, she's just homely and she will never find a husband. And really, really, let's just, let's do something for her. Well, I'm going to believe that one then. Yeah. <laughs> I just, ah, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe that they were like, you're never going to get married. We don't want you to be old and bored in your, what is it, 40s or however old. Here's your world books. We have a whole bunch of old ones on the shelf. Go, go read Go, go read those. <laughs> so her mom was convent educated and her mom apparently took a hand in educating all of her children. So she instructed her children thusly. I'm going to read you a couple of, of the things that she, she sure. taught her children. Right. Ready? Mm-hmm. Number one, don't blow your nose in your napkin. Okay. That seems logical. It does. I agree. Uh, break your bread. Don't cut it. 
I also agree. I mean, who wants mushed bread? But both of these things, I want you to understand here that her mom was convent educated. And so she goes to what her education consists thus far of this, okay? Well, you know, that's two items. I mean, remember women couldn't really learn I've got more. So that, that could have taken an entire year. Oh my gosh. Okay, here's another one. Always smash an eggshell when you've eaten an egg. Okay, so I'm assuming we're talking about like a soft-boiled egg or something, right? So it's like in a little stand? Well, you know, like we went, so listeners, we went to Target the other day because I love Target. and Listeners, let me tell you about Target. Every time we pass by Target, <laughs> she's like, oh, can we go into Target? We need such and such. And I'm like, do we really? Do we really need such and such? And we either end up with a basket full of stuff or nothing at all. But either way, an hour is wasted every time. I got, we some, pass by I got some really cute socks that have a go for eating some tacos. I got that the other day. But anyway, when we were in Target the other day, I found these little egg cups that looked like little chickens. There's like a pink one, a yellow one, a white one. And so it's a little cup that would how that an egg sits in. Who in the devil eats soft boiled eggs that way nowadays? I don't know. Maybe people are trying to bring it back. <laughs> but in any case... We will I, sit down and have our soft boiled eggs in our egg stands. I suppose, right, that... um. The egg would come in the in the shell, and then they would eat the egg out the top, and then to perhaps let the the servants, I guess, know that you're finished. You know, when you go to the restaurant, you put your knife and fork on the plate. That signifies you're done. Maybe that's why you'd have to. Oh, I mean, that makes sense. I, don't I mean, know, otherwise, it'd have to come leer over your shoulder, I suppose. And like, mm, are you done with your egg there? And I'm just, I guess uh, if you crush it, they're like, okay, they're done. I can take the egg away. <laughs> Bring the next course, which I don't know what you eat after a uh, soft boiled egg. egg. <laughs> Now, the fourth one here is the, the, one of my favorites. When I read this, I just was like, I'm going to read it to you. Never comb your hair in church. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hmm. While you're reacting to this. I, I'm processing. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> but while, while you're reacting to it, I have my own reaction, which is that, first of all, who does that? Who takes a comb to church and says, I'm going to comb my hair in church? You know, you've got the responsorial psalm going on, or you're kneeling and praying, or you're singing a hymn, and all of a sudden, the, the urge takes you, I must comb my hair. I just That's the first thing. Well, I don't know, baby. You've got some pretty... Your hair can get a little wild sometimes. Okay, first of all, my hair is curly, and... Can you imagine how it would look if I combed it in church? I wash it on wash day, and then I don't touch it until next wash day. <laughs> <laughs> combing it in church i wonder if that's something like i remember a long time ago it was a john wayne movie i don't remember specifically which one but he was trying to toss this lady off of the train and uh -huh. she was steadfastly refusing to get off the train because she hadn't yet put on her gloves she said something to the effect of i'm not the kind of lady who puts her gloves on outside implying that it's some sort of you know it kind of would make her look like a, a trollop of some sort. Well, I, I wonder if like that. combing your hair in church look, is, is also what year are we in right now? Twenty twenty one. Combing your hair in church in twenty twenty one is still a problem in my mind. <laughs> I feel like you your know your hair should be combed at home before you leave the house or in the car. Like, don't, why are you going to sit there and be like, let me pull out and comb my hair? That's, that's ridiculous. Who combs their hair in public? <laughs> Well, I, think, I guess guys might, you know, back in the day. You always, you know, you see on, a, again, we go back to Mad Men. <laughs> Don always had a comb in his pocket. He pulled out, straightened his hair back after he'd messed it up somehow. So what you're saying is that 1700s France is the same as 1960s New York. Sure, exactly. Exactly oh the gosh. same. Ridiculous. Anyway, 
the all of that to say, you know, her mom again, convent educated, teaching her all these things. And three, no, four lessons. Four, four lessons that I was able to find, yes. But one thing that I thought was really, really hilarious is that Emily, first of all, probably didn't listen to her, which fair enough, because I like what there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on there. But anyway, she likely learned the art of coquetry from her because by the time she was 17, sources say she was beautiful. I wonder if her dad, you know, redacted his previous, <laughs> his previous statements about his terribly ugly daughter who will never marry. Yeah, yeah, because apparently she was 5'9". Wow. Uh-huh. So that's what? 1700s France. Mm-hmm. So I guess men would have been like 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five on average. So you had this 5'9". Woman, and you said she's beautiful, yeah? Uh-huh, at this point, yes. So, supermodel. Uh-huh. In 1700s France. It's also smart. I have no earthly idea about the height of men in France. The only knowledge I have is Napoleon, and I believe he wore heels to make himself taller. <laughs> I read it somewhere. You read it somewhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> I'm just imagining this is 5'9 woman who's beautiful, mm-hmm. who's also smart. Well, you know, that's why a lot of the sources, I guess, they focus mostly on her affairs and not so much on her contributions to math and science, which, by the way, are huge. So I, just, well, I guess that would be more interesting to, to everyone in the 1700s, not a learned French woman. It'd be like that beautiful, tall French woman who has many affairs. It'd be a, you know, it's a more <laughs> it's like clickbait. Yeah, it's, it's clickbait. clickbait. <laughs> yeah. It's something you read at, you know, at the supermarket checkout. <laughs> well, here I'm glad you said that because let's let's talk through the first clickbait article. Sure, headline. okay, let's go. So she began to search for a husband, and this is interesting because it says here she began to search for a husband. Other sources though say it was an arranged marriage, but based on based on who she ends up marrying and some other things, it may have been that she like you go on eHarmony and select your your options for whatever you want. Okay, so she, she so she wants a husband, uh-huh. or maybe she doesn't want, but she's searching for a husband, uh-huh. and she wants certain traits. Correct. Okay. Okay. What are these traits? Here are said traits: older. Okay. Wealthy. Understandable. Away as much as possible. That's unusual. I want an older, wealthy man who's never at home. Well, she lived her best life in the early years of her marriage, as we'll talk about, because she did find someone to marry, and his name was Marquis Florent Claude du Châtelet Lomont. Well, that's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. And so they got married in 1725. Okay. He fit the bill. He owned estates. Estates plural, sir. All right. So he's wealthy. He's Has wealthy. plenty of places to go. Yeah. And then also he had a passion for war. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was gone a lot because well, probably- He's got to go warring. Yeah, because I mean, he has a passion. It's a full-time job. Exactly. I don't know how that works. But anyway, so they got married in 1725. She's found this older, wealthy guy who's like never home. But- 1726, 1727, and then they had a little break of 1733. They had three children. He was off worrying, I imagine. Perhaps so. Hmm. Now, at this point, you know, she's gotten married. She's got her three kids. She's got her governesses for her three kids. And she basically considers her marital duties done. Like, that checkbox is checked. 
Now she can like do whatever she wants. So, <laughs> so I've had your three children and I found three people to raise said children and I'm done with all this. Yeah, like I, I did my job. Now, one source at this point says they agree to live separate lives, but we'll see. In any case, what I can tell you is that she lived her best life. Dancing, flirting, and gambling. Okay, well, yeah, she's super bottle smart lady who has now money and spare time. Uh-huh. Sure, why yeah, not? Yeah, exactly. Now, this, and, and two, think about the time she was in, right? Early 1700s, France was such a decadent court and time to be alive. Like, what a time to be alive. So this is like 1920s uh, America? Because everybody had money. It was, you know, wild times. Oh, yeah, that's the flappers. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, I'll, so, so we're going 40 years before Mad Men, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it was exactly like that, I guess. Now, apparently at this time, it was cool, like it was totally chill for a man who was married to have as many mistresses as he wanted. Okay. However, which I guess, you know, that's always been the case. And like, if I, if you go back and read these things, it's like men always have a million mistresses, which intense, but whatever. But women, hello, Gus. Hey, bud. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, women uh, could only have one at a time. So, men can have as many mistress mistresses as they like. Mm -hmm. Women can have one mister? I guess that's what they're... I don't know what they're called. Hmm. I don't... I, see, see, there's not even a term for it. <laughs> <laughs> now, because I'm a math person, you know, I'm wondering if, if like, each men if each man has n mistresses and each woman has one you know at what point how many intersections yeah, I would say there's be quite a few intersections yeah there. so i'm interested in doing some kind of chart or something i could try to figure that out but that's kind of intense i'd have to know the population too which i don't think i want to but anyway i digress important to note at night we talked about how she did dancing flirting gambling during the day all about studying that's all she did all she cared about so party all night and work all day. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, I guess it's like the lifestyle version of a mullet. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> no, you know, so shortly after the birth of her third child um, in 1733, so that's like, what, eight years or so after she was born, something like, or after she got married, after mm -hmm. she was born, that would be so intense, eight years. Mm. <laughs> uh, so she's tutored in math by a gentleman named Pierre-Louis Moreau de Bapertouille, who's a mathematician and a member of the Royal Academy of Sciences, the French Academy, and the Royal Society. So he's like pretty important. That would be a lengthy business card. Yes. You got to put it on the front and the back, maybe like size two font. Mm. Um, but so she's tutored, like she had many tutors over the course of her life. So this began a lifelong friendship. This was in the 1730s, which was the beginnings of Parisian cafe society. In the cafes the only women allowed were courtesans. So listeners, maybe y'all knew this. I did not. When I first read courtesan, I thought that it was, you know, someone of the court. But <laughs> yeah, I know. I was telling you this and that's exactly what you did. And, you know, because you know what a courtesan is. So what is a courtesan? Uh, it's essentially a high-end uh, prostitute. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm over here envisioning... Parisian cafe society as a mini court, as it were, you know, like where you go visit the king and all that. Turns out it was not. It was a lot more, I guess, seedy. <laughs> so, so, so men and prostitutes. Correct. That, that, that's yeah, who is allowed. That's who's allowed in these, in the, the cafes. And so Emily, she 
wanted to talk math and science with her friends, Mapertui and all of that. And so what she would do is she would dress up like a man to go in and have these conversations. And so here's here's what I'm envisioning. Like I'm envisioning that she's got these trousers that are too large for her, that she's tied with a rope. She's got a hat, a brown hat, and like a fake mustache that she's stuck on. And she's 5'9". And she's 5'9". <laughs> now... The proprietors knew that she was a woman, but they just kind of looked the other way. They just were like, whatever, dude, like do your business and whatever. Talk math. I could just imagine somebody, you know, a, a customer there like, sir, sir, did you know there is a woman over there dressed <laughs> as a man? You need to do something about that. This is a respectable establishment. Only mint and hookers are allowed in here. <laughs> well, you know, I, while I can see why you'd say that. At the time, in 1730s Paris, I think people were more focused on, like, they would whisper to each other before they would, you know. Maybe like, it was a novelty, like, you know, also a learned woman. Maybe so, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, clutching your pearls and stuff about that. In any case, that kind of tells you a little bit about the society that she was born into. And so next time, what we'll do is we'll talk through Voltaire and her relationship with him, as well as some of her achievements. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational. Can't get enough of the math and fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for the math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcasts at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.